What's up, Frockcast? So uh, this is Vince here. Uh, coming to Netflix this week, there's a cool new documentary series. Uh, it's called Murder Among the Mormons, and it's about this uh, document dealer, rare document dealer, and it turns out document forger, uh, this guy, Mark Hoffman. Um, and so this week I got to interview the co-directors uh, on the project, um, which were uh, Jared Hess and Tyler Meesum. Uh, Jared, of course, you probably know as the director of Napoleon Dynamite and Nacho Libre, uh, Gentleman Broncos, Masterminds. Um, and then Tyler is a TV documentary director mostly. He's done uh, An Honest Liar, uh, Biography, I Want My MTV, uh, Sons of Perdition. Um, anyway, I thought it was a cool interview. A lot of the times I just, you know, write these up and uh, post them on Uproxx, but I thought this was kind of a fun conversation uh, about Mark Hoffman and Salt Lake City uh, in the 80s and just the Mormon community in general. So I thought you guys might enjoy that conversation. Um, so I thought I'd share that with you here. So enjoy. <laughs> when we first do zooms nowadays it's not just that you're sizing up the person you're sizing up what's behind them and where what they're <laughs> like where they live what kind of artwork they have yeah uh all right i guess we're just jumping right in yeah let's do it <laughs> how you guys doing good man doing good um where are you both uh joining me from salt lake city the main streets of the 801 <laughs> the heart of hoffman if he has a heart. Yeah, he does not. <laughs> uh, oh, could you just uh, say your names once so my trans uh, my transcriber uh, can get everybody straight? Yep. This is uh, Jared Hess. And this is Tyler Meesom, spelled M-E-A-S-O-M-M. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, I mean, like, all of the characters in this were uh, so enjoyable to me. Uh do you think that the Mormon community has different flavors of uh, eccentrics? Jared, Jared being one of them. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely this particular saga just had a lot of very charismatic personalities involved from, a, I mean, across the spectrum. Jerry D'Elia, one of the, the chief investigators, is just so entertaining, as well as Shannon Flynn. Um, I mean, across the board, I think we, we were not lacking in interesting and fascinating personalities. Yeah, I think the, the members of the Mormon faith uh, consider themselves a bit peculiar. And in fact, they actually kind of embrace that term of peculiar people. They have odd beliefs, if you will, to the rest of the world. Um, and, uh, you know, in Salt Lake City in the 80s, it was a rather small town. And this not only just the Mormon faith, but these individuals who were document collectors were from a certain, they were cut from a certain cloth, if you will. So they all had the same kind of uh, interests, uh, backgrounds, faith. And this is the, and also they had a very trusting uh, uh, nature. Mm -hmm. They had a love of history and a very trusting nature of their own. And this is the environment that Mark Hoffman was able to thrive in utilize these individuals um 
and their, I don't want to say gullibility because they weren't gullible. They loved documents and history. And he used that against them in many ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned uh, Shannon Flynn, who, you know, he shows up with the three-piece suit and he's got, I think, a pocket watch and 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 the the raspy kind of voice. Uh, Is he still in the rare document business? Um, I, I don't think full time. I think it still interests him as a hobby. But, you know, I think for a lot of people involved in it, this this whole thing kind of a lot of people got out of it after what occurred. Some stayed in it. You know, Brent Ashworth, he's still very, very much involved. But, you know, I, I don't I mean, yeah, Shannon seems to have he's a bit of a renaissance man and has a variety of interests. But, yeah, he, he definitely in the film looks like either, you know, Alfred Hitchcock or oh, yeah. um, Winston <laughs> Churchill, yeah. depending on who you're familiar with, but yeah. Yeah, he was kind of forced out of the document business. It's something he always wanted to get into. And so when he was with Mark, I mean, he was living the high life, you know, documents and briefcases of cash. And when that happened, no one would work with him again. So he basically couldn't buy or sell documents anymore. Mm. Um, were you guys influenced by other true crime series? Like, did you go into this, uh, with like a series of do's and don'ts, uh, in your head as far as making like a true crime series? Not really. I mean, we, you know, I, I, I think the most important thing that Tyler and I wanted to do is tell this story from the perspective of the people that lived through it. And so all, all the recreations, depending on, you know, the, to- the tone of the story being told, we try to bring things to life as they were being told by our subjects. So, um, you know, we, we, we didn't want to inject ourselves into it or, or come to it with an, an agenda or any kind of ax to grind. Really, we just wanted to tell this story as it unfolded and let the people who lived it have a chance to speak. So we really took our cues from the personal stories of everyone involved. You know, one thing I learned early in making documentaries is, uh, especially documentaries that could be uh, a bit dour, is to inject some levity into them. Uh, and, and I think uh, what we tried to do with this, and of course our sensibilities are very, you know, we have kind of a comedic background in many of the things we do, but it's this is a difficult subject and i think without a little bit of levity and comedy uh it would be really hard to swallow this series as a three three hours of just pain Mm -hmm. so we tried to do that which obviously makes the funny funnier and the drama more dramatic when you put a little bit of comedy into it Um, I mean, you guys both come from like Mormon backgrounds, right? Was there uh, was there a sense of wanting to tell this story, um, you know, so that maybe like non Mormons wouldn't sensationalize uh, like the Mormonism aspect of it itself? Yeah, I mean, you know, we to be able to really understand this story, we spent a lot of time figuring out how much information about Mormonism to present because really to understand the stakes of this whole story you have to understand mormonism the founding beliefs the world of document dealing just so you could comprehend what a disruption the salamander letter was to the faith Mm -hmm. um and so we, we we did have to kind of strike a balance of giving enough information but not boring people with too much theology um and and ultimately i think we 
kind of figured out the best way to do that is just to show clips of old church films that share their own origin story, which we love. Um, and that was kind of the quickest way to accomplish that. But, but yeah, it's, it's you, you, you know, for viewers that don't know anything about Utah or Mormon culture, we had to set that up for them right at the beginning so they could easily kind of dive into the world and, and comprehend what was going on. Right. On that note, can you explain like, you know, exactly like what the the salamander letter was and why it was uh, such an important thing? Yeah, yeah. The, you know, um, the founding beliefs of Mormonism start with a boy named Joseph Smith in upstate New York who had questions about which church to join. He was had a vision where he was visited by God and Jesus and then later was directed by an angel to translate a set of golden plates that ultimately became the Book of Mormon. And, you know, here you've got familiar Judeo-Christian terms like God and angels, and it feels familiar and, and just the whole, you know, Christian lexicon of it feels, feels right, is suddenly getting subverted by um, and challenged by this letter that gave a completely different account of Joseph Smith being visited by an angel and suddenly twisted it to occult witchcraft terms. It seemed like he was part of this, this folk magic ritual. And so that to a believing Christian community seems to totally undermine and threaten what they believed in and paints a different picture of their founding prophet, um, which, which for a lot of people created a bit of a faith crisis. So it was, again, this is the story that, that missionaries go out and teach when they're knocking doors, is this first vision, as well as this encounter with the angel Moroni and the gold plates. And that was completely upended by the salamander letter. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, for some, and, you know, I, I, I no longer believe in the tenets of the faith. I left it a long time ago. But some individuals, including our editors, would look at the salamander and go, well, why is it so outrageous that a salamander would appear? It's pretty outrageous that an angel would come down and appear as well. So for some, it, it, it you know, the parallels were pretty close. In, mm -hmm. in some aspects. The outrageousness is just as outrageous. Right. Um, did you, did you guys both do missions? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. 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 We both did different places, of course, but yes. Where did you guys go and what was it? Uh, what was it like? I served, I've got my mission call to Caracas, Venezuela. Um, and I was there when Chavez got elected, mm. clear back in like 1988, but I had hernias and I had to come home for, for hernia surgery. And so then I was home for a couple of months and then finished the next year of my mission in Chicago, uh, Spanish speaking. So I kind of had, you know, a, a stateside mission and, and one in South America. But yeah, Tyler, where'd you go? I was in, uh, in Missouri Independence, so I spent a lot of time in Kansas and Nebraska uh, as a 19-year-old wearing a white shirt and tie while my friends were in college going on dates and drinking beer. So <laughs> that's, that sums it up for me, essentially. <laughs> I'm trying to – there was – was Hoffman's mission – like, did, did you go into that at all? Uh, I'm yeah. trying to remember. It's been a couple of weeks since yeah. I watched the whole thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he served a mission to Manchester, England. So he was in, in England for his mission um, in the mid-70s. Yeah. Um, 
so when he was like, you know, like the salamander letter and some of the other forgeries that he made, um, like, do you think he was trying to embarrass the church or was he trying to, you know, forge documents that maybe he thought that they would pay him to, uh, you know, to bury or, or like a blackmail kind of thing? It was, it was both. <laughs> Mark's, Mark's basis for forgery was multifold. If you ask him, of course, he's a very unreliable narrator who's to believe anything he says. He, he, he claims that it was all for money. However, he, do, he does admit that his intent was to bring down the church. Uh, and he would do that kind of as a wolf in sheep's clothing in a way that he would appear a worthy member of the faith. He would meet with this inner sanctum of hierarchy of the Mormon church, and he would uh, sell to them documents. And not just one or two documents. He literally sold hundreds of documents. Many of them were genuine, but a lot of them weren't. But also, I think for Mark, uh, he had the power uh, to change history. Literally, when he came out with a document, and he, and, and, and as he says, if it were verified as true, people would accept it as true, he would accept it as true, and history books were, were quite literally rewritten because of the documents that he found. And the power that he must have felt in that, hmm. you know, the, the need that he had to deceive, which I think was part of his DNA. Um, to keep feeding that addiction he had of fooling individuals and not just fooling a few people, fooling everyone must have given him a rise, you know, that I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, if he's doing all this for money, like I know that he had like the little sports car, but like what was, you know, what was like the secret life that he was spending all of this uh, money on? Yeah, I mean, he would, you know, he traveled a lot to the East Coast, to New York, and he would just live large. Um, He, you know, he had a collection that he was starting to build of first edition children's books. So that that, that was something that he did. But he just, he would kind of splurge. He was horrible with money. And that's what got him into this whole Ponzi scheme predicament that he just couldn't get his head out of. So he, um, you know, he also wanted to buy a half a million dollar home in Salt Lake City in the 1980s. That was a humongous amount of money. So he was, you know, it was it was small things. But again, when he would travel, he would live large. He would make some big purchases. But um, yeah, he was he was terrible with money. You know, at the time of his bombings, the investigators did a, a composite of all the money he owed, and it's over a million dollars that he owed. Um, and one of the, one of the um, bills was he had a $2,000 phone bill, <laughs> a cell phone bill. <laughs> but at the same time, he had bounced a check uh, for a subscription to a magazine for like $50. So he was just broke and in debt millions of dollars and everyone, including the phone company, you remember cell phones in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, every call cost 50 bucks. So <laughs> He was very desperate at the time that he he uh, committed these crimes. He did he did buy a hot tub. That was one of his splurges. We didn't have time to go into that, but he would host some really uh, nerdy Mormon hot tub parties, um, alcohol free. <laughs> Just invite your wife. We'll eat some Rice Krispie treats and play footsie beneath the bubbles. Uh, yeah, I mean, I read in another interview that you thought this series could have been like six or seven episodes. I mean, what are some of your favorite side stories that you ended up having to leave out because they were too, you know? Yep, <laughs> probably, yeah, one of the hot tub stories. 
<laughs> no, I mean, look, there, there was so much stuff. One, one that didn't make the cut uh, that just kind of shows how prolific Hoffman was is that long after he'd been in prison, over a decade after he'd been convicted, in like the late 90s, um, this new Emily Dickinson poem surfaced that nobody had ever heard of. And the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, Massachusetts did a fundraiser so they could buy it. It was, it was up for auction at Sotheby's. And they did, they bought it. They were so excited to add this to their collection and, and do research on it. And lo and behold, Brent Ashworth, uh, who's in the film, calls them and says, hey, I hate to break it to you guys, but that came through me from Hoffman clear back in the 80s. And I'm 99% sure that that's a Hoffman forgery. And they were devastated. I mean, it was like here, over a decade later, <laughs> this thing was existing on the market. And it's just a small kind of sampling of how many more Hoffman documents are out there in the world that people do not know that are forgeries that maybe potentially on some level have rewritten history. Or know that they're forgeries and they don't want to and they don't want to it because they oh. spent X amount of dollars on it. Yeah, so the, the the life that exists out there in the world that he manipulated is just unfathomable. Right. And then, you know, he was doing this and getting these forgeries like verified by the, you know, verify the by verifying bodies that do this. Um, like how much did his story discredit some of those people that were doing all of the, you know, that were supposedly verifying these things as genuine? Mark was great at what he did. He was a craftsman. And it wasn't, he didn't just, you know, get the right paper of the era, but he'd create the right ink. He'd use the right pen. He'd use the handwriting style of this individual. He'd use the verbiage of this individual. And he would research intently. So he, he, he was very, very good at what he did. And he did. He fooled the top experts. Um, and, you know, there's no shame in being dunked on by Michael Jordan. You know, Mark was the best at what he did. And he fooled a lot of individuals. What I do think he did is he 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 did set back the collecting world a bit. But what he did in, in other ways is he, he raised the bar on the verification of documents. Um, we need to look a little closer at these. Um, and we also need to be careful. And what Mark did is what is happening in many ways now. You know, we are being presented with faulty misinformation continually. And I think it's up to us to just not instantly glom onto something that we think is fantastic, like a lot of these people did when they were presented with an amazing document that seemed too great to be true. Mm -hmm. They wanted it. And whether they wanted it to keep it away from the public or they wanted it for their own collection, they would typically buy it and overlook a lot of things. Um, and I think that's there's there's Mark Hoffman's everywhere. And we need to be a little bit more careful of what we buy. Right. Um, what was his uh, like? What was his first big hit as a uh, sale seller and or forger? Yeah, uh, d definitely the Anthon transcript. So, so the you know the document that he found that supposedly was a transcription of the symbols that were found on the golden plates that Joseph Smith translated. So that, that was a very apocryphal story within Mormonism. Nobody knew what that document actually looked like. And so when Mark supposedly found it in this old Bible that belonged to Joseph Smith's family, 
this was groundbreaking for the church because it 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 affirmed everything that they'd always believed and hoped for as it relates to the Book of Mormon. And that put him on the map that immediately took him to the top leaders of the church. The paper checked out, the story checked out, um, the content of the document checked out. And so that really kind of put him immediately in the big leagues of document collecting. And from then on, he just seemed like a reliable source. But that was his first big, big discovery. Um, did you get any sense of like childhood trauma or something from him? He seemed, I mean, the fact that he was so uh, sort of cavalier about killing people, usually, I don't know, usually yeah. that comes from somewhere. Yeah, I mean, he he came from a very strict, devout Mormon family, and his parents were very strict, um, and he was a closeted atheist at a very young age and couldn't, you know, really discuss his true beliefs with anyone. So uh, th- th- there's nothing in our research that shows that he was traumatized in any specific way, but I think just kind of having to keep his personal beliefs bottled up in a very strict religious home was probably difficult and and definitely shaped certain decisions that came later. I mean, I just think the mental gymnastics he must have done. I mean, first and foremost, I think he had an interest in deceiving. I think he gained power from that. Um, You know, it's covered in the film, but when you're 14 years old and you create a mint mark on a coin and make that valuable and it fools the U.S. Treasury, you think at that point you can get away with anything, especially when you're a 14-year-old boy. Remember telling a lie and getting away with it? You think you can get away with anything. And so I think that kind of early need to deceive just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until maybe he felt he was infallible in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think uh, we're coming up on time. Is there anything that I didn't uh, ask you guys that you want uh, people to know about the project? No, this is great. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, we are very, we, we worked on this for four years. We, we love this story. It's in our DNA in many ways. You know, we, we know the subjects, we know the backstory. We, 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 we live amongst all of these individuals and to be able to have it shown this interesting, fascinating story uh, for a worldwide audience. I mean, for us as filmmakers, coming together as a narrative filmmaker and a documentary filmmaker to make this project that we both have passion for, mm-hmm. it's its really a dream come true, I think, for both of us to, to have it on Netflix. Right on. Very cool. I liked it a lot. I'm a big fan. Vince, it was a pleasure, man. Thank yeah. you. Thanks a lot, you guys. Great, Vince. Take care, guys. All right.